0: I met Pastor Davies was when we came here on a youth trip, and uh, somebody in our youth group, I won't mention who it was, busted one of those windows, and you weren't very happy, I remember that, (laughs) that was my first sort of introduction to Nigel Davies, but uh, it's a great blessing to be uh, affiliated here, to know you guys, and we do pray for you uh, often, And uh, it's a a great blessing to be here this morning as well and a privilege to open uh, and share God's word. So let's do that. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. Once we've turned there, um, we'll pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we want to praise and thank you this morning, Lord, that we can gather under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, under, Father, the finished work of Christ on the cross. We thank you, Lord, this morning, as even as the choir sung, Lord, that there is nothing for us to boast in except Christ and his cross, his death on our behalf. And we thank you, Father, for the wonderful plan of salvation that you, uh, Lord, enacted uh, lord uh, two thousand years ago, and brought um, father uh, to us Lord a salvation that was complete and and only needed to be accepted by faith and lord we're so thankful, Lord God, that you have uh, Lord provided such a wonderful salvation, and we pray Lord, even this morning for each and every everyone who is here that lord the the word as it as it goes forth would speak to hearts uh Lord, for those who are believers would would um, that they would rejoice and Lord that they would glory in in the wonderful salvation that uh, Lord you have provided. And if there be any here this morning who know not Christ, Father, we pray that even this morning might be the day when they they place their faith in Christ alone and and uh, Lord uh, become part of your family, uh, Lord, with the assurance of a home in heaven. And Lord, we would just pray that you would be glorified through all that is said and done and hide me behind the cross that Christ would be seen and Christ alone would be magnified. And to give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. You now We live in a do-it-yourself self-help culture, don't we? Do-it-yourself used to be the domain of people who were renovating their homes or who were doing some home improvements, but not anymore. The do-it-yourself attitude has infiltrated into all parts of life. DYI enthusiasts can be found in computing, and programming, in healthcare even. I was on the internet and people um, sprouting uh, their home remedies about how you can you know, help with this sickness and that thing, uh, panel beating, cooking, music making, furniture making, yarn spinners, musical instrument making, robot making, beekeeping, and the list goes on and on and on. You can do it all yourself now. And there are, there are books and websites uh, all uh, out there to help you to do that. But did you know that this do-it-yourself culture has even permeated into religion? I recently saw a, a WikiHow website, one of those websites that tell you how to do stuff, with the title, How to Find the Right Religion for You. And it gave nine steps... To help you to choose a religion that that is right for you, another website has three ways to choose a religion. Step one: get books on general religion because they say you need to understand what religion is in general. Step two: read hallowed religious texts, texts like the Bible or uh, you know the the Quran or the the Vedas in in Hinduism. Step three: determine how well the religion's views align with your own so you need to look for a religion that most closely aligns with your internal beliefs and notice how the search for is, is not for ultimate truth there's no consideration is this really the the, the truth instead it's finding something that you can be with no matter what it claims and this is all a reflection of a do-it-yourself mentality when it comes to religion and of course this type of attitude shouldn't surprise us because it's the very idea that the serpent introduced to Adam and Eve in the garden when he said ye shall be as gods knowing good and evil satan there was advocating a do it yourself religion or a do it yourself godhood and this has been his pattern throughout the fo- or since the fall Do-it-yourself gods uh, and do-it-yourself religions which are created in the likeness of the people who create them. And do-it-yourself gods and religions lead to a do-it-yourself salvation. And all the false religions that we could name teach in some way that you must help yourself in order to reach whatever their destination is, whatever they they, they teach in their particular... For instance, if you are a Jew, you have to obey the Ten Commandments. If you're a Muslim, you have to obey the five uh, pillars of Islam. If you're a Buddhist, you must obey the implications of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. If you're a Baha'i, you must keep the Baha'i Law. If you're a Hindu, you must perform good deeds, the Karma Yoga, and work to attain a state of self-consciousness through Meditation. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you need to obey all of God's law, you need to be a member of their organization, and you must perform good works that fulfill God's will, which to them includes up to 100 hours a month of door knocking. If you're a Scientologist, then you must work towards spiritual enlightenment and an attainment of brotherhood with the universe. If you are a Mormon, you must obey the Ten Commandments of Judaism, every commandment of Jesus and the teachings of the Mormon prophets. If you are a Roman Catholic, you need to perform the sacraments. And since you can't perform all the sacraments, you, uh, you need to go through purgatory to purge you to be you know, fit to go to heaven. And so what all of these systems have in common is that they teach that you receive salvation in whatever form they teach uh, as a reward for your works. As a reward for your self-effort and self-reliance. And the reason for this commonality is ultimately their origin. They all descend from the same point of corruption. And behind them all is the lie of Satan that you can be your own God and that you can work your way to heaven. You can affect your own salvation. So how different is the salvation offered by the self-existent and self-sufficient God of the Bible. In our last message, we saw that the Lord God revealed himself to Moses as the one who was eternally self-existent and self-sufficient. The term self-existent means that God does not need anything outside of himself to exist. Everything owes its existence and being to God, but God is totally independent of everything. He is the first cause from which everything originated. And because he is self-existent and needs nothing outside of himself, it also means that he is self-sufficient. He needs no one or nothing for support or sustenance. Everything he needs is contained within himself. And so when it comes uh, to the salvation that he offers we find that it is totally based upon Himself. It is a salvation that He offers apart from any uh, work that we might do, anything that we might think can earn God's favour. So in place of man's self-effort and self-reliance, the God who revealed Himself to Moses as Jehovah, the great I Am, the Lord God Almighty, offers a salvation based solely on, upon his self-sufficiency. He offers a salvation based upon his devising and his execution. It is utterly unlike the salvation offered by the false gods and false religions of the world. It is a salvation based upon his doings and his merits. And so there is nothing do-it-yourself about it at all. It is the opposite of a self-sufficiency help religion so how do we know that our self-sufficient god provided all that we need for salvation well the reason simply is that god has told us in his word that he has provided everything we need god has told us that he has made available an all sufficient salvation and there are many statements in god's word that speak directly to this point acts 4 12 tells us that there is salvation in no other name. Uh, Jesus in John 14 verse 6 told us that he alone is the way, uh, the truth and the life and that no man cometh to the Father but by him. And time and time again throughout the scriptures the Bible tells us that there is only one way and it is the way that God has devised, it's the way that God has planned, it's the way that God has executed and the, the one verse that I want to mention in particular is a statement made by John the Baptist, the one whom Jesus called the greatest of all the prophets, the one who was to pre- prepare the way of the Lord. And as John saw Jesus coming in John 1.29, it's the verse that we have behind our pulpit, it's John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Think of all the ways that John could have described Jesus. He could have said, Behold, the Son of God. He could have said, Behold, the Word of God. Or behold, the Christ of God. He could have said, Behold, the Creator of the world. Or behold, the light of the world. And many other descriptions could have been appropriate, but he chose to identify him as the Lamb of God. The most important thing that John thought that we needed to know about Jesus was that he was the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the sacrifice. Behold God's bleeding victim. That was John's most fundamental introduction to Jesus Christ. And of course the image of the sacrificial lamb was well known to the Jewish people. Lambs were a central part of the spiritual life of Israel. And twice every day a lamb was offered on the altar for the sins of the people. One lamb at nine, eight, 9 o'clock in the morning and one at 3 p.m. And there were also countless lambs dying on the the other major Jewish holidays or holy days. And it happened year after year, century after century. And so this image of the lamb being sacrificed, was ingrained into the very mindset, into the very psyche of the Jewish people. But nowhere was the lamb more significant than in the celebration of the Passover. It is in the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 that we see Jehovah providing a sufficient salvation for his people. This morning we read, we well, had read to us John, uh, sorry Exodus twelve one to fourteen, and so we won't read those verses again. But of course, this chapter is all about the instructions that God gave to Moses and to Israel in preparation for the Passover, in preparation for what He was about to do. And of course, it's important for us to realise that the Passover was the culmination of all the plagues on Egypt. Tomorrow morning, we'll look at the plagues, and so. We're sort of skipping ahead because this is a message that I think more uh, aptly fits a Sunday morning uh, time slot. But the nine previous plagues were all signs to Pharaoh that he should let the Israelites go. Every time Pharaoh refused, his heart, heart got harder, as did the severity of the plagues. And this would culminate in the Passover and the tenth plague, which we know, as we've read here, would be the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn. And of course the two went hand in hand. This, this plague and of course the preparations for that that God gave within this chapter. The Israelites were to obey the directives of the Lord in order to avoid the plague which God would bring upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And this final plague would also be the catalyst for the exodus. For the departure of Israel out of egypt this would be the final blow which would compel pharaoh to release the israelites look in chapter 11 if it's just over the page maybe in verses 4 to 7 let's read those verses and and uh, see what god says here chapter 11 verse 4 and moses said thus saith the lord about midnight will i go out into the midst of israel and moses is speaking to pharaoh he's rehearsing the very words of god to pharaoh And and I will go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne even unto the firstborn of the maidservants that is behind the mill and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there was not like it nor shall it be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Did you notice here that God was going, to, that the Lord was going to put a difference between Egypt and Israel? How was He going to distinguish Israel from from the Egyptians? Was he going to bypass the very suburbs that they lived in? Was he only going to call in on the Egyptians? No. We know that he was going to pass through the entire land of Egypt. And uh, the difference or the distinction is to be found in how some would avoid the plague of death. Some would take refuge under the blood of the lamb so that the Lord would pass over them and the rest would face the destroyer, And be judged. And Exodus chapter 12 reveals how the people of Israel could take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And in these verses God gives us specific or gave specific detailed instructions because it was a life or death situation. Literally for them it was a life or death situation. If they did not obey these commandments then death would visit their households. On the 10th day of the first month we read, Each family was to select a lamb and to bring it into their household. Chapter 12 and verse 3. Speak ye ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the 10th day of this month uh, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. So it was to be a lamb. Or literally the, the term lamb here speaks of an animal out of the flock. And later on we read that it could be a lamb or a goat. So a, an animal out of the flock. It couldn't be It couldn't be a calf. It couldn't be a dove. It couldn't be a camel. It couldn't be a, an ass or any of those, those animals. It had to be a, a lamb. It had to be out of the flock. It just couldn't be any, any type of animal. God specifically had in mind the right type of animal because of what it would picture. Now, if the household was too small to eat the entire lamb, then the meal would be shared with the neighbours, we read in verse 4. We won't read that verse. But the lamb was to be a male, we read, because it was going to stand in for the firstborn son. So it would be like for like. The lamb also had to be without defect or fault of any kind. Verse 5 says that, Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it out of out from the sheep or from the goats. So the lamb was going to be serve as a sacrifice for sin, and nothing but a perfect sacrifice could satisfy the requirements of a holy God. In verse six, states that they were to care for the lamb for four days before killing it. Philip Ryken, in his commentary, states. That the children would often become attached to the lamb as they would have fed it cared for it and played with it the lamb became a pet for the family making its slaying all the more difficult and in that short time they would have ha- would have identified with the lamb so that it almost became part of their family as the father slit the throat of that lamb one might imagine the child asking why dad Why do we have to do this? This is, we love this little lamb. We love, you know, I don't know, what what do you call a lamb? Um, We love little Betsy or whatever, you know. We love this lamb. And the father would explain that the lamb was a substitute. The firstborn did not have to die because the lamb had died in its place. And as the father of the household killed the lamb, it was common for the family who were gathered together for that occasion to say, God has provided a lamb for us. And then we read that the blood of the lamb had to be painted on the outside of the of the door frames. Verse 7, and ye, they shall take uh, of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper po- doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Verse 22 gives us further information telling us that the hyssop plant was to be used as a a paintbrush to smear the blood onto the doorpost. Verse 22 says, And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. As we just read here, once this was done they were to go inside and not to come out again until the morning. They would only be safe. The only way that they could be safe was is if they sheltered that night under the blood of the lamb. And verses 8 to 11 tells us what they were to do inside the house. They were to roast the lamb and to, to eat it with, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Verse 8 says, And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall ye eat it. And they were to eat that entire meal quickly, while dressed, ready for travel. Verse 11, and ye shall, and thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And of course, they were to eat the meal clothed as if they were going to start a journey because this was the last night that they would ever be in Egypt verse 23 states that at midnight when the Lord passed through the land that he would pass over every house that shelters under the blood of the lamb verse 23 for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts the Lord will pass over the door And will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And of course the Egyptians who did not heed the Lord's warnings found that that he smote every firstborn of every household. Verse 29 and 30. And it came to pass that that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not one house where there was not one dead. You know, under the Lord's instructions, a lamb was provided as a substitute for the firstborn of every house. A lamb was sufficient for the salvation of all sheltered under its blood god had provided all that was necessary to escape this coming judgment but you know this is not the first time that god had provided a substitute to save an individual 500 years before this event a father and his son were on their way to a sacrifice but in this case the sacrifice was going to be the son because we know that this is speaking about Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. God had appointed one of the mountains in the land of Moriah to be the place of the sacrifice. Moriah is a group of mountains where the city of Jerusalem would later be built. And Isaac was carrying the wood for the sacrifice. And uh, uh, being an astute son, he realized that there was no no animal to sacrifice. And so in Genesis 22, in verse 7, he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham replied in verse 8, God would provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And of course, on that day, the Lord stopped the sacrifice of Isaac and instead he provided a ram. The ram died instead of Isaac in the place of Isaac. And from that day forward, that mountain was called Jehovah-Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. Verse 14 of Genesis 22 states, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen or literally it shall be seen to it or the Lord will see to it in the sense that he will provide for. When he sees to something, he provides for that. So what would the Lord provide? He would provide a lamb. He would provide a substitute. The Lord will provide the lamb on the mountain that one day would be the city of Jerusalem. God designated the very area where he would provide a sacrificial lamb to die in the place of sinners. We see God planning all of this, God having all of this in his mind. 800 years after the Exodus, God used the prophet Isaiah to prophesy of the Messiah, the servant of Jehovah, suffering and dying like a lamb in the place of sinners. In Isaiah 53 and verse 7, we read, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. The preceding verses reveal that he would be our substitute in Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes are we healed. All we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the Lamb who would bear the sins of the people the Isaiah prophesied that the Lamb of God would die in our place to shelter us spiritually from the consequences of our sin and that His death would bring spiritual healing, forgiveness and peace with God. Fast forward another 700 years and we find that Jesus of Nazareth is entering Jerusalem on a donkey. It is the event that is known as the triumphal entry. The day that Jesus entered Jerusalem was the 10th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. Does that ring a bell? Does that ring a bell to what we've read here about the Passover? The very day when all of Israel are bringing their Passover lambs into their houses, Jesus enters into Jerusalem to cleanse the house of God. And on the 14th day of the first month, at 3 p.m., as the Passover lambs are being slaughtered all over Jerusalem, Jesus was giving up his life on the cross. John Phillips writes on the exact day at the exact time when Jews all across the country were killing their lambs God's true Passover lamb was expiring on the cross of Calvary. A supernatural darkness reigned supreme from the sixth hour to the ninth hour during which time Jesus became the actual sin bearer. Once the light was turned back on Jesus bowed his head and died. Do we see how all of this fits together? Do we see how the Passover observance is a type or a foreshadowing of the true Passover? The sacrificial lamb that God provided was his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was his son that gave his life that sinners might find shelter under his blood. No wonder the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. No wonder the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 19 wrote that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as, with, uh, as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. All of the images and pictures of a lamb dying as a substitute in the place of another find their culmination in Jesus' death on the cross. Truly He is the all-sufficient Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Passover Lamb. The Passover Lamb reveals that the provision for salvation was all a work of God. God provided the Lamb and He alone could atone for sin. The Passover lamb reveals the most fundamental truths about the sufficiency of God's salvation. In our remaining time, I want to focus on three aspects of the Passover, three things that the Passover does for us. The first thing I want us to see is that the Passover saves through judgment. The Passover saves through judgment. And remember that the Passover was a plague. God was bringing salvation through judgment. Sin cannot be overlooked. God cannot simply sweep sin under the carpet. It must be judged. The Bible is full of examples where sinners were judged. And the Bible is full of prophecies that warn unbelievers, that warn those who have never trust Christ, that they will be judged for their sins. Someone must bear the penalty for sin. What judgment was the Passover saving Israel from? Well, verse 12 states that the final plague was a judgment. Notice there, uh, towards the end of verse 12, against all the gods of Egypt. Against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am Jehovah, the great I am we saw last time. It was not a, this was not a political liberation that they were experiencing though. It was a spiritual liberation from spiritual overlords. We're speaking about the destruction and the total humiliation of all the gods of Egypt. But that is not the most important thing that, that Israel needed saving from. See the truth is that they needed saving from the Lord himself. From the lord himself of, of on on three occasions oh well in here in verse 12 in, in particular he says notice verse 12 again for i will pass through the land of egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn of the land of egypt and on three other occasions in verse 23 in verse 20 uh, 27 verse 29 god says that he would pass through the land he would bring judgment upon all the people, upon all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. And all of these verses speak of the Lord smiting the Egyptians. But did you know that the Israelites were not exempt from the Lord's judgment? The Hebrews would have faced the same plague of death as the Egyptians if they had not obeyed all that God had commanded them. The death angel would have take, would take the firstborn from every house, Hebrew and Egyptian, all were under the condemnation of sin. All were under the death penalty. And isn't that just as true today as it was in that day? Doesn't the Bible declare that all are sinners? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 and 12 says, it is, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And even Israel needed to find shelter from the judgment of God. The Lord was going to smite all the firstborn, Jew and Egyptian alike, and so this, the people needed to be saved by the Lord, from the Lord. And how was he going to do this? He was going to do that through a sacrifice. And that brings us to the second way the Passover saves us. We see that the Passover saves through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. The Passover was a meal to be eaten, but it was also a sacrifice. Verse 27 calls it a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover it was a sacrifice in place of the firstborn and the key to this sacrifice was in the blood notice verse 13 and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are and when I see the blood I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The only thing that could avert God's judgment upon them was the blood. The blood makes all the difference. It was the blood of the sacrificial lamb that was necessary. And if there was going to be a salvation, there must be judgment. But the judgment falls on the sacrifice. And that is what happened at the Passover. And that is what happened at the cross when Jesus died there for the judgment of, 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 for the sins of the world. The cross was the place where God judged the sin of the world. Jesus Christ died on the cross for every sin every human has committed is committing and will commit past, present and future. All sins were placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ our willing sacrifice. Death must be inflicted either on the guilty or upon the innocent substitute. And if the judgment does not fall on the innocent sacrifice, then it must fall. It must fall on the sinner. And that is the only alternative. God's judgment, God's wrath on sin must fall either on the innocent sacrifice or on the guilty sinner. And that is the only way that God can be both just and righteous and at the same time show his love and his grace. There is no third option. We are all sinners deserving the wrath of God. We're all deserving separation from him in the lake of fire for all eternity. But God has provided a way for us to be right in his sight and it comes through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The Passover saves us through judgment and it saves us through sacrifice. But thirdly, we see that the Passover saves through substitution. Saves through substitution. Notice that last line of verse 30. Down there in verse 30. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. There was not a house where there was not one dead. Not a single house escaped death that night. Does this only apply to the Egyptians? Were they the only ones to experience death? No. The Bible reveals that death entered every house in Egypt that night the Israelite houses and the Egyptian houses. Every house had someone dead in it. And either there was a dead firstborn son or there was a dead lamb. And if there wasn't a dead lamb, then there definitely would be a dead son. The key to the salvation God provided was not just the blood, not just the sacrifice, but the substitutionary sacrifice. The sacrifice must take the place of the firstborn. The lamb must die in place of the Son. That is substitution. And so it is in the ultimate Passover, where the Lord Jesus Christ died instead of in place of the sinner. He was a substitutionary sacrifice. First Peter chapter three, verse eighteen. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust and that word for indicates he's telling us that substitution took place the just one the lord jesus christ dying in the place of as a substitute for the unjust and he did that that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but being made alive by the spirit 2 Corinthians 5.21 also adds, for he, speaking of God, made him, speaking of Christ, to be sin for us. There's that substitution. He He made, God made Christ sin in place of us instead of us who knew no sin. Christ knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, our sins were imputed to Christ so that his righteousness might be imputed to us. There on the cross, the Lamb of God took upon himself the sins of the world and died in its place. The Lord became the Lamb. The Saviour became the sacrifice. The Judge became the judged, And he did it for you. And for me, the Passover pictures the cross and it teaches us that someone must pay the penalty for sin. It can be the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, or it must be you if you reject the salvation offered by Christ. You know, John's Gospel, chapter 3, tells us that Jesus Christ didn't come into this world. To judge the world, he came to be that sacrifice. In his first coming, he came to be the sacrifice. John three seventeen: For God not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the begotten, only begotten Son of God. Yes, that's how, it, that's how it is. Jesus Christ came into the world. He came to be the salvation that this world needs. But if you reject the salvation offered by Christ, then that judgment must fall upon you. If you trust in the Lamb's sacrifice, then his blood shelters you from the coming judgment. But if you reject Jesus the Lamb, then nothing can shelter you from that coming day. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 27 and 28 states, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Everyone must face the judgment of God. But verse 28 continues, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. He became the judgment. He took your penalty. He took your sins upon himself. And he was the judgment of God. The judgment of God fell upon him. So it doesn't need to fall upon you. And it says, it continues, that them that look to him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Everyone must be judged. And if Christ doesn't bear your judgment, then you will be judged. But if he does... And as this verse says, "When Christ returns for you, it will be with salvation, the ultimate salvation to be glorified with him for all eternity. But it's the blood of Christ that brings all of this about. The blood of Jesus is totally sufficient. There is nothing else needed. There is nothing else that God could accept. The one who looks to the Lamb will find Christ not as a judge, but as a saviour. I wonder this morning, have you taken shelter in Jesus Christ? Have you come under the shadow of the cross? Have you trusted in his death on the cross for you? Today, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will accept anyone who seeks shelter in his sacrificial, substitutionary death. And right now he is willing to receive anyone who places their trust in him. He longs to shelter you from that coming day of judgment. But the Bible makes it plain, abundantly plain. In fact, over 150 verses testify to this, that the only proper response to Jesus Christ's work on our behalf is to simply believe it. To believe it. Faith or belief in Christ and His finished work is the only requirement for salvation. Our faith in Christ, faith in Christ is not a work. Romans chapter 4 is categorical about that. It is, the, it is meeting the only condition whereupon then God saves you. All, salvation is all a work of God. He is all-sufficient when it comes to salvation. You need do nothing but when you place your faith in him, you meet the condition whereupon then God comes and he backs up his great dump truck of salvation and he dumps all of the blessings of salvation upon you and gives you what you could never earn yourself, gives you what you could what you never could deserve. but it's all by faith. the simple requirement for salvation. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, whosoever places his faith in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There's a promise there, believe and you will be saved. See, salvation is not a matter of doing anything. We spoke at the start of the message about all of those different religions that that, that say you have to do something. You have to do something. You have to earn your way there. You have to merit God's favour in some way. But God says no. There's nothing that could merit my salvation your sins are too far gone. You're too far gone in your sins. The only thing that can save you is the, is the sacrificial, substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. It's not a matter of doing anything because it's all been done. It is a matter now of believing in someone, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as I've seen... Throughout my time as a pastor, there's much confusion about the simple term believe. We use the term believe to express a, a thought, maybe a, a speculation or, or an opinion. We might say, well, some, someone says, Do you know where so and so went? I, I believe he went that way. But well, that's not how the Bible uses it. The Bible, when the Bible uses the word believe, it deals with a certainty. Saving faith is more than just believing some facts. Sure, yes, you must believe the facts of the gospel. Before someone can believe in Jesus Christ, they must know about Him, that He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And they must understand what He did for them on their their behalf. But saving faith also includes appropriation. The word appropriate simply means to, to yourself. And that's simply what believing is. In the context of the Passover, an Israelite could have believed the facts of what Moses had said, but unless he appropriated that truth and personally applied it, it would mean nothing. The death angel would still have entered his home. He needed to apply the blood to the doorposts if he was to experience salvation. And while Christ's shed blood is sufficient for the salvation of the whole world, it must be appropriated by the individual in order to have an effect. We must appropriate this salvation by faith in the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. It must be personally applied. And to convey this idea, we use the word believe or Or trust, that word believe just simply means trust. You must not only believe the facts of Jesus' death for your sin and his resurrection, but you must also personally trust him alone to save you from the consequences of your sin, which the Bible declares to be hell. In other words, you are relying on Jesus Christ's sacrificial work as your only means of a right standing before God. It is Jesus Christ plus nothing. It is not Jesus Christ plus my, my, my mum's salvation or my church membership or my baptism. It is Jesus Christ plus nothing. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's finished work alone. You must trust in him alone the bible presents this as our only plea to be able to come before god christ's finished work on the cross will not avail until someone has received it by faith or by trusting in his work alone in light of christ's death for our sins and bodily resurrection the issue in salvation now is not what should i do but what has been done for me? The basis for our salvation is not our walk, but Christ's finished work. The means of salvation is not works, but simply faith. And so we find that God's salvation is all sufficient. You have nothing to contribute and you can only receive it by faith. Will you find shelter under the blood of the lamb behold the lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world you can, be only sa- you can only be saved by God's grace alone through faith alone based on the finished work of Christ alone will you look to him by faith alone you know on, on November 26th 2008 A team of terrorists from Pakistan stormed the Taj Mahal Palace Hotel in Mumbai, India. After the carnage, over 200 people lay dead. A reporter interviewed a guest who had been at the hotel for dinner that night. And the guest described how he and his friends were eating dinner when they heard gunshots. Someone grabbed him and pulled him under the table. As the assassins came in, they opened fire with automatic rifles until they thought everyone had been killed. Miraculously, this man survived. When the interviewer asked the guest how he lived when everyone else at his table had been killed, this is how he replied. I suppose because I was covered in someone else's blood, they took me for dead. I was covered... In someone else's blood. And this is the perfect picture of God's gift through Jesus Christ to each and every one of us. Because He paid the penalty for our sin. Because we are covered under the blood of His sacrifice, we can have eternal life. And God offers that eternal life to every one of us. If you're here this morning without Jesus Christ, I don't know your hearts. Last time I preached at the conference. There was a man who came in that was unsaved, came in off the street. I don't know where you are this morning, but if you're here without Jesus Christ, you are in a most precarious position. You have no basis for hope of an eternal life with God in heaven. Your only hope is to fall upon the sufficient sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that describes you this morning, let me urge you to find out a, a man or if you're, you're a woman, another woman who can take the Bible and simply, there's many here who can do that, take the Bible and show you simply what we've just said again this morning. That salvation is all the work of God. You'll find here salvation sufficient. But as believers this morning, we, we are already under the blood. God has redeemed us just like he redeemed the nation of Israel that night. But you know he redeemed Israel for a purpose. The rest of the book of Exodus rather, shows that God had redeemed them to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom who would worship and serve him as the great God, the great I am that I am. And, and what, what is the only response? From a heart that has been saved by by a God who has done everything, when when really we deserve to be separated from Him for all eternity. What's the only response? It's the the response of gratitude, it's the response of praise. It is the giving, uh, uh, the sacrifice of our lips in the service of our lives. Are you willing to be a living sacrifice based upon the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1 says? Will you do that? I know my own heart. There's times when we commit to him. But, you know, as, as the life and as schedule, the schedule goes on, you, you get busy and you take that commitment back and you start, you know, being busy about your own things. Maybe we need to recommit to the Lord this morning. On the basis of his son's all-sufficient sacrifice that we might serve him again with renewed vigour, with renewed zeal. Not, not to, in some way, to, to, to you know, um, pay God for what he's done, but it just as a, a, a symbol of our, of our gratitude, living for him in the light of his son's sacrifice. It is all-sufficient. I trust this morning that God's all-sufficient sacrifice will be a great source of comfort to everyone here, a great source of blessing and a great encouragement and motivation to us to move forward. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for Christ, And the fact, Lord, that he was a willing sacrifice, a willing substitutionary atonement on our behalf. And Father, we're struck at just how undeserving we are. And Lord, we only have to look into the depth of our heart and see the many thoughts and attitudes Many actions that we've done, Lord, that condemn us. But, Father, we thank you so much that those who are in Christ Jesus are no longer under condemnation. That Christ took our condemnation upon himself. And, Father, we pray that if there be someone here who's not saved, That this morning would be the morning that they enter into the family of God. That they come to the realisation that their sins are forgiven. That they become, Lord, an heir of Christ, an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. Of all the rich blessings of salvation. Father, we pray that you would smite that one in their heart. Lord, not let them forget, Lord, the truth that they've heard this morning about Christ as their all-sufficient sacrifice. May they humble themselves this morning to place their faith and trust in Christ alone. And for us as believers, Lord God, we pray that this would be, Lord, a reminder of, of, Lord, the need for us to be, Lord, a a living sacrifice now in, in behalf Of our Savior. That we would not seek to live for our own pleasure, to live for, Lord, our own purposes, but that we might fulfill your purpose for us as saved individuals in this world. Help us, Father, to be faithful in light of this all sufficient sacrifice. And Lord God, do a mighty work in and through us and through this message